Thanks, Jim. I, th I think I will use this podium mic, if that's all right. Can everyone hear me fine? I was going to use a lavalier, but I think it's a little bit easier, and you may not want to see me dancing around. Um, but it's great to, to be here. Um, my home is in Dallas, although I, I teach at Stanford and at Oxford uh, on these issues. And it is like coming home when I see so many old friends in the audience as well as the new friends I've met. Of course, I come from a dysfunctional family at home, but that's, that's another story. Not really. Mom, I didn't mean that. But um, although this is a, a hefty tome and it is a legal treatise, we've endeavored to make it relevant not just to lawyers or judges, but also to, um, to, to people just with an interest in the subject. Uh, we've specifically tried to make it uh, accessible and relevant to CEOs, VPs of corporate social responsibility, sustainability managers, and just interested citizens, because these are issues that do concern us all. Um, we are living at a, a truly exciting time, a time, one of those periods in human history of exceptional change. Um, it's, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, there were periods such as, you know, the, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution. We are now, in my opinion, leading... Uh, living in a, a time of just as tumultuous change. The world is no longer the world of sovereign nation-states that the Treaty of Westphalia set up in 1648 and that formed the mindset of Henry Kissinger and the mindset that all nations, including the, the U.S., had during the 20th century. In the 21st century, we're looking at a totally different system. It's a complex, adaptive network system. What that mean, it meant is that Jim got it right. And Jim's does, done such a great job in leadership uh, here. He's really transformed an already good World Affairs Council to a spectacularly good World Affairs Council, uh, including his good taste in speakers. Thank you very much, Jim. And let me add my thanks as well to, uh, to, to Donna and the Communities Foundation and Concero Global, our, our great sponsors. But what Jim did right was he changed the name of the council. Um, it, it was correct to actually consider it not international affairs, which wasn't the prior name, but actually the World Affairs Council. And that's a much more appropriate name because international, international between nations, really no longer captures this new complex reality. What do I mean by that? I mean that right now we're living in a world where multinational corporations will often uh, eclipse nation-states in their power and the impact that they have on the daily lives of citizens here in the U.S. and citizens around the world. I'm talking about multinational corporations, but also a, a whole bevy of other non-state actors. You know, we've got terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and its inspired uh, shoot-offs. We've got organized crime, hackers and cyber criminals, um, empowered individuals, over 50 million American citizens, it's probably double that. The last time I checked, it was 50 million American citizens are in regular touch using social networking sites with people around the world by their own uh, profession. And we've seen that in the recent Iranian crisis. We're seeing it right now. The Chinese diaspora is concerned with what's happening with the Uyghur Muslims in China on both sides of that, that issue. And so the world is completely different. Never before in human history which is not, the, not all that long. If you, if you envision the entire bulk of history of life, you know, the entire, uh, you stretch out your hands, the, the Cambrian period is from the wrist to the end of the hand, and you could basically scratch off the entire human history by just uh, a thick nail file. You get rid of it. But in that short period of time, we have evolved in our global consciousness, and that's what we are seeing now, a world of unprecedented transparency. There were phases of globalization, of course. 
you know, the first phase was the exploration period where you had people like Columbus and Vasco da Gama and Magellan often with chartered stock companies going abroad in search of, of minerals of gold, silver, spices. Uh, and, and that was an exciting time for the world. But it does not compare to the pace, the volume of trade, and the extreme interdependence that we have today. The second phase of globalization was, of course, that associated with the birth of the company, the corporate form, and the Industrial Revolution. Um, not only did you have the chartered stock companies in the first phase, but in the second phase, you actually had joint stock companies, which you know, were quite a revolution. Um, in English law, in the middle of the 19th century, with limited liability, there were two acts that, that did this. And then in other countries, like in, in Holland and in the United States, again in the 19th century, suddenly companies became easy to form, and they became vehicles for limited liability. So the shareholders weren't just um, exposed if, if the company uh, encountered a risk and lost its assets, but their liability was limited to their investment. That changed everything. Prior to that, it literally took an act of parliament to create a company. So with the general incorporation approach, companies could be set up with a simple memorandum of understanding. Articles of incorporation is what we call it here. And that trend went around the world. And it, it basically it, it engendered a huge amount of economic growth, as we've seen. But it also generated some abuses. You know, abuses were much easier to hide in those days. And some of the chartered companies and even these private companies were incredibly powerful even at that time. They didn't have the impact that the modern companies had, but they were empowered to, to wage war. If you think of one of the, in fact, per, perhaps the first real multinational company, the Dutch East Indies Company, it was literally empowered to make war. In fact, that's the instructions that they had when they set off. It was wage war and attack the, the Spanish and Portuguese wherever you find them. So that, that sort of competitive advantage where it means blowing your opponents out of the water is quite different from the competitive advantage that we're seeing today. To give you another example, some London merchants sent a gentleman named Ed Fenton uh, on a, an exploration route. And on the voyage for this London merchants, his strategic plan was to, quote, capture St. Helena and there to be proclaimed king. So it was really a wild and willy time in that second phase of globalization. The law at this time was informed, of course, by the church and natural law. This comes to my mind because just in the last couple of days, the Pope has issued an encyclical talking about corporate social responsibility. And the principles that he talks about are very similar to the principles that we sketch in this book. So what I'm going to do in our limited time this evening is to talk a little bit about this new context and then secondly describe the seven principles that we think are part of the, the approach that really defines this whole area of corporate social responsibility. And then finally talk about some of the applications of the principles to this new governance model that uh, I'll be describing. And then we'll get to the fun part, which is uh, you know, hearing from you and having a discussion about the issues. Um, but going back for a, a bit into this early time, when we're starting out in the very first phase of globalization, we had a different period of law. It was universal law, natural law, divinely inspired. It was the law that some of you who are lawyers are familiar with, um, Hugo Grotius, um, Blackstone, de Vittel, Vittoria, these are the founders of the discipline of what's now called international law. But then it was something different. It was accessible to all, people of all sorts, individuals, had a responsibility for knowing these principles through reason and applying them in their lives. Um, the Blackstone's commentaries, which were published in 1776, 
not uncoincidentally the same year as the Declaration of Independence and Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, remarkable year, his commentaries talked about universal law that applied not just to states, so it wasn't international law, that came later. It was the law of nations, the law of peoples. The Roman concept was jus gentium, the law of peoples. Now that's very different than what we evolved away from, but we're getting back to that in a sense now. So it's no coincidence that the Constitution of the United States actually has this phrase in it, the law of nations. And that was the understanding at the time of the Constitution, that people, individual citizens, and this was Jefferson's understanding, Madison, Adams, Washington, they had a responsibility for knowing these universal principles of law and respecting them, principles of good faith and fair dealing, principles of keeping your promises, of honoring contracts, of respecting private property, for example. Uh, again, it was no coincidence that the very first statute of the U.S. Congress, the Alien Tort Claims Act, also known as ATCA, embraced these universal principles. And it even empowered foreigners who saw offenses under the, quote, law of nations to sue in U.S. courts for remedy under the law of nations. That means that people that were attacked by pirates, by the Barbary uh, terrorists of their time that Jefferson encountered, and diplomats who were um, subject to violations of diplomatic immunity and the normal protections for ambassadors, these people could sue in U.S. courts. Now, that same law is now being used by a number of lawyers to hold corporations accountable. Just a couple of weeks ago, Shell Oil Company settled a case for $15 million, um, a longstanding case that goes back 15 years, it's a million dollars a year, I guess, for the death and torture and murder of Ken Sarawiwa and the Agoni activist in the Niger Delta who had protested against Shell's environmental spillages and their human rights violations. So that's just one of many cases that, that you can read about if you want to. Uh, there's a great website by Chris Avery called uh, the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. It's business-humanrights.org, also the first thing that comes up when you Google business and human rights. And it has a legal accountability portal that traces many of the world's corporations that are either in lawsuits or have been sued and, and had multi-billion dollar in the case of the Holocaust litigation or multi-million dollar in the case of, say, Unical, Total, and Burma um, remedies for their alleged violations of human rights. Um, so this is amazing, the way that this early law has now continued to evolve and is used to hold corporations accountable today. And yet, you know, the abuses today are, I think, without a doubt, they're less than in the time of Cecil Rhodes and the Royal South African Company, where literally he was empowered to make war again and would cut off the arms of people and, uh, you know, basically subject the workers to slavery in order to have them meet their production quotas. That doesn't happen as much anymore. It does happen. In the chocolate industry, there's still slavery. In sexual trafficking, of course, we know is a business that involves gross human rights abuses. But by and large, um, you know, those sorts of worst cases of abuse are less apparent than, uh, than we would, would have seen then. The abuses we're seeing now tend to be sweatshop labor. The extractive industry has a pattern of abuse because they have to go in places where they're often repressive governments. There's not an effective rule of law. And so we're still seeing those sorts of, of incidents. Um, this website I'm, I mentioned to you tracks thousands of companies, and what it does is post the allegations of abuse, gives the companies a chance to respond. So that's an alternative to litigation, which is, is quite attractive because it actually done some very effective things. They were instrumental, for example, in bringing attention to the 
uh, internet companies, Yahoo, Google, Microsoft, Cisco, that had been accused of complicity with the Chinese government. You know, Cisco provides the, the great firewall of China. Microsoft was implicated in, in censoring a blogger. Um, um, Yahoo actually turned over a journalist that worked for the New York Times, Shi Tao, when the Chinese government asked Yahoo for his information, email address, and so forth. So these are the sorts of situations that we're getting into to now. They're much more sophisticated and much more complex because Yahoo is saying, or Microsoft or Cisco, well, we've got to apply with local law. We've got to comply with local law. And yet they end up you know, being dragged into these situations. Again, just a couple of weeks ago, my old company, Nokia, um, not Nokia itself, but a joint venture that it's the principal partner in, Nokia Siemens Joint Venture, was accused by people, probably uh, with some justification, of being um, involved in some of the Iranian repression on the grounds that Nokia had not only supplied a telecom network, but they had supplied the, the Iranian government with the ability to monitor the calls of those who were organizing protest, those who were subject to repression by the Iranian government. Now, as someone that had drafted the code of conduct for Nokia, I was, uh, which was then basically taken verbatim and, and placed in this new joint venture, I was concerned that the code wasn't being lived up to because the code, like hundreds of corporate codes today, now it included an explicit commitment to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the highest standards of ethics. And so if there wasn't a due diligence process to really consider how its technology could be used, you know, the company could not only have legal liability, which would be significant, it might be millions of dollars or, you know, at the worst case scenario, maybe hundreds of millions or a billion, it could have violation of its social license to operate. Its very ability to carry on business could be implicated if its employees suddenly left the company because they didn't want to be associated with it, or if its brand image, which is one of the, the top brands in the world, was tarnished. As we all know, the company's uh, intellectual property, the people's ideas and, and their patented inventions and so forth, and the brand image are the two major constituents of corporate value today. So that's the sort of situation that we're in. It's quite different than, you know, what, you know, what we envisioned at the time of the earliest form of globalization. But nowadays, this new interdependence uh, causes us to, you know, require, it requires companies, but also citizens, to be even more aware of what's going on in the world, to the extent that nowadays companies have their own foreign policies, and they need to have their own foreign policies because they're part of this complex networked system. And let me turn now to the seven principles that we identify in the book, which again, the book focuses on from the perspective of companies, but we, we, we would argue that they also have relevance at every stage. The international community, international organizations like the UN, NGOs like Amnesty International, but also um, you know, these other non-state actors, civil society actors, local NGOs, churches, mosques, and individuals, as well as municipalities and states, every level needs to take these principles into account. What are they? In brief, the first principle is integrated decision-making. And I'm going to dwell on this one for a second because it's so fundamental. What we mean by integrated decision-making is sometimes described as the triple bottom line, not just caring about profits, but caring about people and the planet as well. Now, that's a simple way of putting it, but it's very hard to do because what that requires is that you look at the system Coca-Cola, for example, has recently entered into a partnership with the World Wildlife Federation where it's trying to conserve water. 
Coca-Cola had been oblivious by their own admission to their use of water in their products. And of course, it's the main constituent of, of their drink. And yet they realized that not only were they depleting the watersheds of where they were operating, um, you know, but pretty soon they wouldn't have water for their products, but the communities wouldn't have water you know, to be able to, to buy their products. So they suddenly realized that they could no longer operate in isolation. They had to have integrated decision-making, where they looked at not only the financial bottom line, but the environment that sustained their products and the communities from which they got their workers and their customers, right? So you have to look at it on a, an integrated basis. Now, this is very hard to do because there's a strong ideology here, and it's actually an ideology that's still dominant in law schools and business schools, but it's empirically inaccurate, that says that companies need to only care about making profits for shareholders, short-term shareholder value. Well, you know, a moment's dwelling on that should be enough to tell us that's an insufficient way to run a business. The businesses that have been great, and Jim Collins writes about this in his business bestsellers like Good to Great, Built to Last, they've always been adapting and changing, and they take into account how they're serving the societies around them. They've never been just about profit. The Ford Motor Company and the whole doctrine of Fordism involved Ford recognizing he needed to pay his workers enough that they could buy his cars. And, of course, you know, if you don't do that, you're, you're contributing to, um, well, basically the sort of, of crisis that we're seeing now, which so much of it does stem from an excessive focus on short-term shareholder value and just money, greed, instead of the larger constituents of value that companies, businesses of all types can bring to communities. So that's integrated decision-making. If I had to sum it up, it's, it's another way to think of it is, you know, it, it, it's not sufficient just to focus on one dimension of a problem, you know, the, the way the Western uh, nation states and individuals always have. But you need to look at the context more in the way that, say, Asia and the Chinese do. You can't just have an engineer invent the wheel. That's great. That's a great invention. But isn't it much more uh, exciting to think of the other three wheels as well and look at it as a system that can bring value to people? Um, in addition to integrated decision-making, uh, another principle that's very vital, uh, it's, it's sort of the whole process principle. It's stakeholder engagement, which is the principle that's akin to democracy on the political level. It's, again, not looking just at shareholders, but engaging the entire value chain, including your suppliers. Why is this good business? It's basically uh, opening your eyes to a wider horizon. You're listening to your your, um, the people that are investing in your company, not just investing money, but listening to the employees and what they have to say, listening to the environmental activists who could otherwise come up to bite you, or the human rights activists, listening to the regulators, listening to the media, listening to the unions, listening to, in other words, the entire set of stakeholders, the communities in which you operate, that if you don't pay attention to in this more competitive, more complex adaptive system, they can, they can really do enormous harm not just in terms of legal penalties, but the penalties to reputation and the continuing relationships that are integrally connected to success in this more, more competitive world. The third principle is transparency. Um, and, and transparency, of course, was also absent in the current crisis. You know, we've had these opaque instruments that nobody could understand. I used to work on some of these things, and I, in one case I was working on a a contract with a, an investment bank that shall be unnamed, and they had a mathematical formula in there pertaining to these derivatives, and it just didn't work out, no matter what variables I put in there. And I found out, you know, I, I finally had the courage to ask these geniuses at the investment bank, you know, well, this doesn't seem to work out, and they said, oh, yeah, you're right, we didn't, we didn't put the right formula in there. 
But, you know, so many times people are afraid to ask the emperor whether or not he or she has clothes on. And that's what happened to a large extent. No one really understood the, the complex nature of these derivatives a lot of times. The rating agencies, another example, you know, what they did was very opaque to a lot of people. But, you know, it was almost criminal the way that they allowed their conflicts of interest to color the ratings that they gave these instruments uh, that they were being uh, sold by the investment banks. So transparency is very important. And it's not something we have a choice over. You know, Jim asked people to turn, over, turn off their cell phones. Well, these cell phones nowadays have cameras, and there are billions of them in the world, I'm happy to say. We were very happy at Nokia to sell these cell phones. But, you know, they all now can be connected instantly up to a satellite uplink and go to the BBC or CNN. With 24-7 media, we are in a radically different uh, environment of transparency, where something that is, you know, used to, to, to be off the radar screen in the Congo or in Sudan now can make the news within an instant. I mean, literally at the speed of light, because the, you know, the uh, signal is being carried by fiber optic cables a lot of times that transmit photons at the speed of light. So that era of transparency, again, is something wholly new in human history, and of course it's changing behavior. People are much more concerned about how their actions will be viewed, and so they need to take that transparency into account, both internally inside the corporation, but also with respect to how uh, they will be viewed by external actors. Um, fourthly, after transparency, we have risk management, or the precautionary principle. Again, something that was entirely lacking in the current crisis. We've seen excessive risk-taking, no sorts of prudent due diligence procedures, no impact assessments. You know, we, in, the, in the current crisis, again, you had people that were uh, often on some of these, these boards, there were no risk management committees whatsoever, even though that's increasingly required by law around the world, and certainly it's a, a prudent measure of corporate governance here. Um, I would also say the next principle, accountability, is at the heart of things. Accountability just means the rule of law, due process of law, equal protection, making sure that when there's a harm, there's a remedy. And, you know, an English folk poem I, I'll read you indicates that this is not exactly a new idea. It's quite an old idea. This poem is from the, um, the 1700s. Let me see if I can find it here. They hang the man and flog the woman that steal the goose from off the common but let the greater villain loose that steals the common from the goose. That's the English folk poem. And, and it really does have relevance here because in so many of these cases, you know, there hasn't been high-level accountability. Sure, you'll have a, an actor like Bernie Madoff that's imprisoned, but how many executives at, the, at these companies, you know, many of which are out of business now, the, a lot of the mortgage lenders don't exist anymore, how many of those people are being held accountable for this, the grave harm that they've caused the economic situation in the country, uh, individual borrowers, and, and really the, the system as a whole. Um, the system as a whole is facing a huge trust and confidence deficit, and yet no one is paying for that. Um, finally, um, well, actually there are two more principles. One is sort of obvious. That's the way with this interdependence we've had more, um, more clear and coordinated social norms, and there are literally thousands of new social norms relevant to this. There's, there are codes of conduct on labor rights, the environment, human rights. There are private standards like SA 8000, which involves SA Social Accountability 8000, is used by many companies to measure their social and economic performance, uh, as well as their environmental performance. 
Um, there's the Fair Labor Association. I mean, I could go on and on, but there are literally thousands of new codes of conduct, which seems to offer a compliance challenge until you realize that 95 to 98 percent of the norms are the same thing. They're the norms that are expressed in the UN Global Compact, the norms of respecting human rights in accordance with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the norm of respecting the environment, protecting labor rights, and not being corrupt. I mean, that's at a very high level. But even if you look at it more granularly, what the norms say, the issues are at the margin. They're about the exact age of child labor being banned or, uh, you know, what sort of bribe is off limits, what the exact cutoff is. But the, the whole, you know, thrust of the law, you can really see that, you know, you're not, you're not going to be successful in business in this new transparent age if you engage in child labor or forced labor or you uh, are complicit with rebels that are, um, you know, using child soldiers to mine minerals in the Congo, that sort of thing. Um, and then the final, which is the, the least legally supported, but there are a surprising number of statutes and cases around the world on this, that's the investment principle. And believe it or not, with things like the Community Investment Act in the United States or the Black Empowerment Act in South Africa, or the, the practice in indigenous communities, either by law or practice, of requiring a sort of memorandum of understanding, companies, in order to do business in various places, are now expected to give back to the community. Indonesia has a new law requiring this. That's the essence of their notion of corporate social responsibility. Um, it's, it's really a pretty simple principle. And it's, again, that principle that Ford recognized early in the 20th century, that you cannot just be oblivious to what's happening in the community around you. Even as hard-nosed a CEO as Jack Welch of General Electric said, you know, I cannot, or companies cannot be silent when the community around them is burning. They must take action. And what he meant by that is they need to be engaged. GE committed to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights a few years back. They have now put those commitments into their world-class audit standards, their operational reviews, and they're um, basically governing to these standards. Why is that significant? Because when a company like GE, which in many ways is a microcosm of the global economy and the U.S. economy, very diverse businesses, world-class business people, when they commit to this and they take it seriously and they make it happen, you know that we've reached a new stage in, in corporate history. Now, is it just public relations? Of course not. If it were just public relations, A, companies would not have stuck to it as, they, uh, as the Economist article you received describes except for a few cuts in some corporate philanthropy, which is quite different from corporate social responsibility, companies in general are keeping up these principles. Why? Well, because, A, they do save money, you know, by eliminating waste and complying with the environment. You can save a lot of energy, add money to the bottom line. But these principles also help you spot opportunities. They help you think about, for example, what rural women in India need, and that's why GE has a new joint venture in this area where they're expanding health services to rural women in India. Um, they've done this with medical equipment. They're going to be doing it with other areas. Unilever does the same thing. BP, Beyond Petroleum, British Petroleum, has a project called the Orha Stove, which is trying to reduce indoor air pollution that kills hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people a year. And they're, they're making money on it in the, in the realm of tens of millions of dollars. It's not a huge um, business, but it's a pilot business. But they've already made a profit on it and they've gotten enormous goodwill. And like Muhammad Yunus of Grameen Bank, um, you know, they're thinking of ways to retool their businesses so that they're more responsive to these new expectations of society. 
um, and they are building their brand, they're recruiting and retaining more employees and better employees as a result, um, and they're avoiding the, the sorts of reputational risk that they would have had otherwise by showing that they are committed to the community and they're aligning their companies with society. I'll give you another good example. A couple of years ago, actually about a year and a half ago, Gap, which had had a history of being criticized for child labor and other sorts of problems, they had a, a child labor situation in India. But because they had been transparent, disclosing their supplier locations, they had been auditing the human rights standards, it was what Mary Robinson called a two-day wonder. Mary Robinson, the former chairman of, uh, or commissioner of high, uh, high Commissioner for Human Rights and President of Ireland, um, observed that it really became a non-issue, and that's because GAP had reinforced its brand. It had engaged stakeholder relationships. It was in touch with the NGOs and the communities, and so people knew where the heart of GAP was. There was no question, and there is no question. I know the executives, once you're face-to-face -face with somebody and you build those relationships, they know whether you're authentic or not. They know whether it's just PR or not. And if you are authentic, if you're truly looking for ways to add value, not just economic value, but value in the broader natural value sense, making you know, people empowered, giving them new economic opportunities, you know, helping them solve their problems of disease, of poverty, of, of, Ill, of illiteracy, um, they know that they can count on you. It builds trust. It builds trust of the sort that we have not had in the current economic crisis and we need to get back to. So I'll just I'll stop there, but uh, I did want to give one final example of how this is changing, um, changing relationships. The International Labor Organization, which goes back to 1919, um, has a new program called the Better Work Initiative. And it's a good example of this new governance where companies have foreign policies and they're working with developed agencies, rich nations, but also working with the local government to build the, that government's enforcement capacity in the labor rights area. They're working with the local unions, the local workers. In other words, it's a multi-stakeholder approach. What they're doing is identifying the interest and using this principle of integrated decision-making. Again, they're listening to stakeholders. They're in, insisting on transparency of everyone's interest and what they're doing. Um, they're minimizing risk, and they're investing in the community. Everyone gives something, whatever their added value is. It may be money, it may be expertise, it may be ideas. That reduces the number of audits of factories, and it empowers the workers. They can be paid a higher wage. There's a lot less distraction. Otherwise, you know, a lot of these companies are audited 80 times a year, and they're basically you know, just doing audits all the time instead of producing uh, you know, the, the shirts, the shoes, or whatever. That's a good example, and there's some other examples we can talk about of the new multi-stakeholder approach, this new holistic system thinking, integrated decision-making that is so, uh, it, it's having an effect in the 21st century economy, and I think it's got to have an even more effect if we're going to get out of this crisis and be um, placed on a more sustainable platform for long-term stability, security, prosperity, and success, either on behalf of our country and its companies, but also on behalf of the world and other individuals and companies and nations in the world. So thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it and look forward to your discussion. We have a handheld mic and I'd ask for you to wait and ask your question until the mic is there so we can get on our hands and boom mic. Question I have, um, could you look at the current economic crisis in terms of violations of the very very standards that you're saying, at least some companies are, um, are, are employing, and uh, do you see, uh, personally I don't see 
a lot of hope within that particular community of a, a radical change in values, particularly since I hear that the bonuses for 2009 are going to be as big as they were in 2007. Yeah, that's a good question, John. Uh, you know, clearly, it's basically the opposite of the seven principles identified, as I tried to suggest, it. it's gotten us into this crisis. And some of the initial reactions of the world's leaders were quite on point, both on behalf of Obama. Gordon Brown has been a leader on this. The April 20th summit called for not just new ethics on the part of financial companies, but explicitly called for greater corporate social responsibility, recognizing that that's got to be part of the answer. And yet we are backing away from it a little bit. I think what we're, what we're seeing, and I... You know, I hate to say it, but I think it has a little bit of a W curve to it, no pun intended. You know, we've seen the economy and the stock market come up again. Now it's flat, and it may be going down again. A lot of us think, unfortunately, it probably will go down again before it comes back up because the same structural factors that led us into the crisis are still there, and they're not corrected. What happened is when we had national economies, you know, during the 19th century and the early 20th century, this happened in the U.S. around the world. Those national economies were rationalized. Markets became national. Prior to that, it was impossible for someone, say, in Oregon, looking to make a T-shirt to connect with somebody in Virginia who had a cotton plantation or whatever. And then that changed. And we put in rules to mitigate the abuses and excesses. We put in rules that outlawed child labor, that gave you know, enhanced labor rights to people, uh, ultimately that, you know, that respected the environment more. That needs to happen on the global level. We certainly, you know, it, it, I don't want world government. I'd be a little bit afraid of world government, black helicopters and all that. Uh, I, I would fear for the liberty implications of that. But we do need governance. We need better decision-making. We need integrated decision-making that takes stakeholders into account. It's also known on the public policy front, foreign policy, policy front, as multilateralism. You know, we need that sort of mindset of working with others and connecting. Why? Because the risks otherwise are just so great. And a lot of times they're hidden. This financial crisis, this economic crisis, is not an isolated event. We have to take into account the other elements and implications and the hidden connections. You know, we saw what happened when oil was at this, at this huge level a year ago. It's now at a more reasonable level. It raised food prices because of the agricultural imports going up. That, in turn, caused instability in societies. It caused change of governments in places like Haiti. It caused deaths in places like Cameroon. And it caused, again, a lack of trust in the system. So the issues of finance, economy, are related then to agricultural, to energy policy, to environmental policy, whether or not they're resources. And they're related to, to whether you're going to have persistent poverty and growing inequality, which is not good for society, business, or people, or whether you're going to shrink those and have consumers, again, that can buy your products, have growing middle classes around the world. Um, so. You're right. I, I think that we got off to a good start in addressing this, but right now the fact that it's on the back burner and that we're focusing as the West always does, unlike the Chinese. You know, the Chinese do in, in so many ways, and this has been confirmed in academic studies by people like Richard Nisbet. It's also, you know, well known in China. They don't look, as Americans do, and this is proven in slides, on the focal point, the one object in the forefront of a painting, for example. They'll look at the context. You know the Sheng Fui paintings of China, the water mountain paintings, where you've got the huge, awesome nature and the small little brushstrokes rec rec representing small humanity? That's the way the Chinese think. They are looking at this on a more integrated basis. Now, they're not uh, as good as we've been historically on human rights, for example, and they're facing their own environmental challenges. But they could be a dark, dark horse here. 
they're now committing in their laws to social responsibility. And they are actually giving workers more rights. And so there's exciting things going on outside of the U.S. But if we're going to recapture leadership, and I think we must because we are the engine of the world's economy in many ways. You know, I, I think India, the BRIC countries, China, and so forth are coming on. We've got to get our act together and recognize that leadership has an inherently moral component, and it must take into account principles of the sort I've discussed. You have a question back there, sir? You had a question. Most of us in the room have taken high school economics, the American capitalistic system, free enterprise, uh, Adam Smith's invisible hand, and so forth. Uh, now that uh, all of us in the room who are taxpayers are helping to bail out GM, Chrysler, AIG, and others, is the American free enterprise system that we learned in high school now obsolete? Well, it's not obsolete, but it has to get back to founding principles. Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776, but he also, you know, he was a moral philosopher in the Enlightenment. He also wrote his theory of moral sentiments. Adam Smith, people don't know this a lot of times, was very against corporations. Why? Because he thought limited liability would encourage excessive greed and abuse. And that's, you know, in, in, in one sense what happened. But I don't think the problem is the limited liability companies. It's the limited liability companies operating without the moral principles that Adam Smith and all of these other eminent philosophers have, have cared about. It's also basically, you know, what we actually had a stakeholder view, and we, and, and in great detail, we describe in in the book how legal cases, um, you know, like the Ford case, Dodge versus Ford, that we talk about, um, that that describes the Fordism principle. They actually had a stakeholder view. There was an, a law review article a few years back, four or five years back, that called the end of history in corporate law, and it was like the end of history thesis that Francis Fukuyama had, you know, this triumphant. Uh, version of capitalism that never needed any other values or considerations. Um, it's just as false in, in the corporate law area as it is in the foreign policy area. Our empirical review of common and civil law countries showed that the world is overwhelmingly committed to a stakeholder view, as the United States was, as Britain was. In 1995, Britain made this explicit with a law that said that directors of a company not may but must take into account the views of uh, employees. Three years ago, Britain passed a, a, a similar law in 2006 that said companies' directors must, not may, but are required to take into account the impact of their actions on the community and the environment and stakeholders. So this is actually, you know, making clear what has been the case up at, until the last 30 years. Under the Reagan-Thatcher revolution and sort of a, a distorted view of capitalism that we now see in spades in Moscow, you know, this is the, the Russian version of capitalism. It's also somewhat what we see in places like South Africa and a few other countries. It's untrammeled capitalism, an excessive commitment to laissez-faire, you know, to free markets. Now, I'm very much for, for trade and, and for market-based exchange, but markets do not work without some basic rules as to, for example, when the farmer's market will open, you know, and how you can't sell adulterated products there. This is the old medieval idea of lex mercatoria that I mentioned that was informed by notions from the church of natural law that you have to deal with people honestly. You can't hide things and commit fraud. Even Milton Friedman, who said that the company's duty is only to its shareholders, he said that, you, you know, that of course, assumes that companies play by the rules of the game and aren't fraudulent. The rules of the game now in this more complex interconnected world have changed. You know, there's rules at every level, and they're increasingly enforcement alternatives at every level that make it clear that if you don't play by the rules of, of classic capitalism, 
which required some good faith and fair dealing, required attention to human issues as well as, um, you know, the impact on society as well as the impact on your pocketbook, then, you know, you're, you're going to be in trouble if you don't pay attention to those norms. Thank you. Uh, Jim, what you're saying is so important. I, I really feel like this is really a, a special evening. And I want to thank the World Affairs Council and the sponsors again because I don't come to very many of you, but I'm going to come to some more. And I encourage everybody to become a member if you're not yet. Here, here. Um, what action can we take, having listened to you, other than, of course, buying your book, uh, what action can we take to start to either create uh, a, an incentive structure for more companies to adopt these principles or for more communities to demand this? What can we do even in the next month to begin to uh, accelerate the process of adopting these ideas? Thank you. Well, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked because I didn't have the chance to get to that in my talk. So this wasn't a setup question, but uh, I'm looking forward to our date later. No, I'm kidding. Uh, she has a fiance. <laughs> exactly. No, the, um, there, the limits of your imagination. Uh, if you're in a company, you should be, you know, it's part of your job to be aware of the system, to provide strategic and moral leadership. That's what leadership is. My colleague from Stanford, Deborah Rohde, has a, a great book on this called Moral Leadership. And she makes a very strong case that leadership, properly conceived, is inherently moral. All of us are leaders. As consumers, the impacts of our actions, what we buy, as investors, the kind of companies we invest in, you know, as volunteers, the way we spend our time or the way we donate our money has a huge impact on this. You know, if you want to be more activist, you can indeed read the book and write op-eds about this and have neighborhood meetings and spread the word. Sustainable development is, by the way, I, I didn't define terms up front, but by corporate social responsibility, I mean basically the same thing as sustainability and corporate citizenship. It's good corporate citizenship to be aware of the world and your impact on it and to, uh, to bring these principles into play. So in whatever your role is, whether it's as a, a teacher, a, a, you know, a homemaker, a father, a mother, you can educate your children, as a donor to charities like Oxfam that's doing great work, um, Amnesty International, the Bill of Rights Defense Committee, the Center for International Sustainable Development Law, those are some of the charities that are receiving all the proceeds from our book. And... You know, I would urge you to think about you know, how much time you have and what your commitment is. And if I've done nothing else tonight than to get you to ask the question as you proceed through life, what impact am I having? Because you know, this is really, these are critical issues. In many cases, you know, they will come back to haunt us. You know, I, I mentioned the chain from riots elsewhere. Well, those riots yield disease. Those riots because the healthcare system in Haiti fails. They yield that doesn't respect borders. They yield refugees, you know, that will come to our shores. They yield wars and conflict. They yield environmental destruction if we don't take into account the systemic and interrelationship between these hidden connected links in the chain. In a network, risk is more uh, prevalent because any little ripple in the network can then spread at instant speed these days across shores from a poor country to a rich company, country. And the top global problems today, the ones I've just mentioned, do not respect borders. They have an impact. And if you and your children, your relatives, your friends want to live in a better world, in a world that isn't threatened within 100 years by a devastating rise in sea levels, then whatever position you're in, you should you know, use your own imagination and, and, and take ethical actions that are also in your enlightened self-interest to 
try to address these issues using the principles that, uh, that I described. Um, you've touched quite a bit on the role of uh, regulation of businesses. Oh, there you are. <laughs> Hello. Okay. And, um, you know, there's been a lot in the news recently about what, what is the, the role and the effectiveness of, of government regulating business. Um, as corporate social responsibility moves forward and, and proves more successful, um, you know, do you, do you believe that implementing these successful ideas as a regulation will be effective, or do you think um, that it is something that can only truly work if companies kind of come about it on their own, and if it is placed in as a regulation, um, how would we avoid the all too common symptom where these companies feel as if they're being punished for their success or held to a different standard because they are more successful than others? That's a great question, and you know the answer is something that's that's you know obviously engaged politicians, but also lots of academics. Uh, in recent years especially, but even going back to Adam Smith's time. Adam Smith did call for, for laissez-faire, but he also knew that there had to be basic rules of the road. And that's what we call for in our book. We were very much against you know, command and control, top-down regulation that could lead to counterproductive consequences. The theme that we repeatedly return to is this notion of enforced self-regulation in the shadow of the law. The standards are out there. Companies that don't um, adhere to them. You know, if they engage in child labor, for example, or as a couple of companies did, notoriously Cassie and Titan did in Iraq, the private military contractors, engaged in torture. It's a violation of a use Kogan's norm, one of the strongest norms in the international system. It's also a violation of our domestic statutes and treaties that the U.S. is a party to. And, you know, th these are norms that cannot be violated with impunity. That, that's the accountability principle. And so what companies need to do in order to avoid getting slapped is, you know, and they can be slapped quite hard these days, uh, is to make sure they have the internal due diligence processes in place for their operational decisions, their investment. They, for example, need a board management committee, people empowered and accountable within the corporation to ask questions. Part of the code of conduct at Nokia I drafted over a decade ago now um, actually put the responsibility on every employee to raise an issue because the company was, you know, very committed at the very top level and throughout to ethical action and to respect for human rights and the environment. And so that's what, that's what they need to do and, and, and can do. Um, the other thing that I don't want to get too much on the negative, if companies don't implement these principles, they're not going to be successful in today's world because they will not be aware of bringing online the entire other half of the world that's not online, that hasn't used a telephone or had a refrigerator, you know, that, that doesn't have an adequate source of energy and that is, you know, therefore... Um, you know, at risk, you know, children that don't have clean water have diseases, those diseases don't respect borders. Um, so there's a tremendous business opportunity for ethical business action and very innovative creative action uh, of the sort that Eunice and, and the Davos folks and lots of other people are thinking about. Chip, I'd like, I'm going to raise the name of a company that, that causes a lot of uh, mixed feelings, mm -hmm. Walmart. Mm -hmm. A lot of people could argue that they actually have found the secret sauce with regards to corporate citizenship and sustainability. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts about their personal sustainability program? Yeah, it's, um, it's very impressive on the environmental side. I mean, they've undoubtedly gotten religion on that because they've realized the huge cost savings, you know, from having, you know, more fuel-efficient vehicles when they transport products, less use of energy. There's no doubt they, they see the business case. And it also helps them recruit, retain employees, 
get not only sustainable but regular investment, enhance the brand image, all of the business benefits. Where Walmart still has some issues is on the human rights side. You know, even now there are recurrent claims against uh, them for discrimination and so forth. Their main problem is dealing with scale, and it's an inherent problem for that business. You know, I was uh, just in rural Arkansas prior to coming here, and, you know, there's a, a Walmart there, but none of the small businesses that used to provide those products and services are there. And so Walmart has a special obligation to pay attention to the social side as well as the environmental side of sustainability and corporate uh, uh, social responsibility, I think. And that's, that's where the challenge lies. I will, I will share with the audience that I know from personal experience that they, on an individual basis mm -hmm. with employees, mm -hmm. implement a personal sustainability program. It is yeah. by choice, by the employee, mm -hmm. where they give the employee incentives around that. Well, that's fabulous. I think they need to continue and expand that sort of thing. As I say, I think they're getting religion because they're realizing that, again, they, they can't take uh, actions that are isolated from the society in which they operate. They were banned by you know, municipal ordinance in Chicago, from in Chicago, and then there was a, um, you know, a, a, basically a political push allowing them to, to enter again from the mayor of Chicago. Yes? We have such a great opportunity in our Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex at this very minute to, to really support something that will change our breathing, it will change our health situation, and that is to make public, uh, make a comment if you believe that we should have corporations clean up their emissions and when they don't just because they don't want to spend the money, I don't think that's a valid reason for them not to clean up. And I was so pleased to see your this program announced because it fits in with what we can do right here, right now. It's easy to do. If you go online, you can go contact the U.S. E EPA at the U.S. government, gov, I think is what it is, and just tell them that we need to have any group. It's not just anybody in the concrete making business or anybody else, but all uh, corporations must develop more social responsibility for the people that work for them, and they, in a public hearing held at DFW about two or three weeks, three weeks ago, there was a hearing and a lot of people went there and gave their public testimony, and one of the persons testifying was from a cement-making company, a big one, an international one, who operates just south of this city, and Thank you, they I'm going to have to ask you if we got uh, one more question right over there. Okay, but be sure you have an opportunity. Make your comments if you want clean air and, and assist these corporations being more socially responsible. That's a, thank you, ma'am. One last question, the gentleman right over in the back there. In the blue shirt? I can't see that part yet. Yes, I think there it's this one. He had his hand up. I'm glad he got, uh, got the mic. I, I was thinking a, a year or two ago about corporate responsibility, and I was wondering how big of an effect the laws in Delaware would have in 
could that be the way to get uh, this kind of um, responsibility about uh, sustainability, et cetera, or maybe long-term Interesting. Thinking. That's a great question. The, um, for those of you who may not know, the question's interesting because Delaware was at the forefront of the so-called race to the bottom in corporate law. It, that's how it got so many corporations overwhelmingly from the U.S. incorporated in Delaware. So what if Delaware raised his standards is the question. Um, we are now seeing a sort of race to the bottom in global law where companies you know, will go to where regulations are either absent or non-enforced. There is some empirical debate as to whether that's actually happening, but I, I think properly construed and we address the empirical issues in the book, there's no doubt that it's happening. And I know from a fact, uh, having advised companies and been with a multinational, this is something that enters executives' minds. Um, something else that people may not know, though, is that most of the states in the U.S. already have stakeholder statutes. They have what's called constituency statutes that not only allow, but in some cases, for example, Connecticut require directors again. Um, in most cases, it's permissive. Allow directors to take into account the impact on not just shareholders, but the community and the environment. So I don't think that Delaware acting alone would do that. What would happen is if there were rigorous standards, the companies that are trying to be rogues or laggards would move to other states. So what we need is um, more awareness and even beefed up enforcement of these global standards that are already out there. There's already a lot of enforcement at every level. The International Criminal Court has actually threatened to have executives that were complicit in the um, rape of women and the empowerment of rebels that were using child soldiers in the Congo brought before the criminal court. There are OECD guidelines, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the rich countries nations of the world have guidelines that now have national contact points around the OECD countries where complaints can be brought in a quasi-judicial, sometimes called non-judicial, but it's really quasi-judicial complaints mechanism that can then dialogue and try to resolve the problem. Um, there are sanctions brought. You know, I mentioned uh, the ATCA, Alien Tort Claims Litigation. Many, in fact, many of the, the world's leading companies have been brought and are still being sued. There's a huge case involving Ford and uh, the companies that were involved in the apartheid regime that's pending now. You heard about the Shell case that settled. You heard about the Unical and Total, Total cases that settled. You know, even at the municipal level, there are now states and there are cities that have boycott uh, statutes against companies that invest in Iran or Burma, for example, rogue nations. So I, I could elaborate, and we do elaborate in the book extensively, but at every level, there are enforcement mechanisms for these standards. And so companies that, that aren't aware of that are just not doing their business. Anybody that's unaware of that and is responsible as a lawyer with a major company or in the communications or affairs function, you know, they shouldn't keep their job because it's sort of basic. Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Competitive requirement now that you know about that and you know what could happen to the company and its market cap or its, its you know, stakeholder relationships, its brand image, if, if that blow comes. 
But I don't want to end on such a negative note. I, I want to end on the positive note again of saying that although this complex adaptive system has these nodes where you can have all these threats transmitted, disease and refugees and war and conflict, terrorism at, at the extreme, those same nodes can really offer um, a, a new way of doing business and a new way of being citizens to write complaints, as you say. You know, we can now communicate with the people in Iran, as long as they don't completely shut down the Internet, as they've done sometimes, but we can use, you know, proxies and, and, and circumvention technologies, even if they do shut down the Internet, to still communicate with the people in Iran and China on sites like Facebook and Twitter. This is an exciting new reality. And these new webs are not just vehicles for transmissions of evils and threats. They're also vehicles for reinforcing these strong norms that already exist, reinforcing the enforcement mechanisms where companies and citizens on their own can self-regulate in the shadow of the law and bring us to a better world. And I, I just want to thank Jim again and the World Affairs Council for having these, this series of programs where we can talk about these important issues like this. And thank you again, Don. Thank you so much. Chip, it's really great to see the work that you did on human rights and now extend it to this. And uh, I encourage everyone to think about what he said, listen to it again on the podcast. Chip will be going to the back of the room now. You can take a look at the book and perhaps order it. Um, also want to thank the Dallas League of Women Voters for being with us tonight uh, and other cooperating organizations. On behalf of the Communities Foundation of, of, of Texas and the World Affairs Council and our primary sponsor, Donna Wilhelm, Thank you so much for your comments and your questions and, and for being a part of, of this initiative. Go back out in that hot sunshine and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you so much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.